it can't be the same people. Like if we want different futures, if we don't want to keep living inside the kinds of imaginations that kind of got us into this mess, then whose imaginations do we need to be resourcing? to say the nonprofit sector is broken. Less easy is saying how we're going to fix it. Welcome to What Donors Want, a podcast by IG Advisors, where we speak with brilliant people to reimagine the future of social impact. In this fourth season, we'll be switching things up a bit and diving into what we all want, including and beyond donors. I'm Rachel Stephenson-Chef, IG's Managing Director, and we're a strategy consultancy specializing in social and environmental change. This podcast is part of our mission to fix the flow of resources for good. Welcome back to What Donors Want. I'm Rachel, IG's Managing Director and the host of the show. And I'm Emily, IG's CEO. And today we are diving into the concept of imagination infrastructure with Cassie Robinson. She's going to introduce herself more on the episode, but for now, I'll just say a thank you and shout out to our official season four sponsor, Siegel Family Foundation, whose generosity and partnership makes this all possible. Also, a thank you to our fantastic media partner, Alliance Magazine. You can check out their website, alliancemagazine.org, and get 50% off a subscription with the code WHATDONORSWANT, all one word, at checkout. All right, on to the conversation. Welcome, Cassie, to What Donors Want. It's so lovely to be speaking with you today. Thank you for having me. It's really nice to see you both. So before we dive into the conversation, we were wondering if you could introduce yourself for listeners, because we know you have a very impressive bio and you basically work everywhere. So please, can you tell listeners about who you are, where you work and, and what kind of background you're coming from? Yeah, so where I work, it's funny you say it seems like you work everywhere because I think some people would quite like me to go away. (laughs) I've had quite a few people say, yeah, can you like spend a bit less time being everywhere? But it does actually, one of the things I really appreciate about being in quite a few different spaces is I guess it gives me a particular view on a landscape. And I hope I try and kind of take some responsibility for that in trying to help connect up dots and weave things together and make sense of things. So at the moment, I spend my time pretty much between four different things. I work part-time at the Joseph Roundtree Foundation, where I'm an associate director on the Emerging Futures work. I am also an associate director part-time at the Paul Hamlin Foundation, where I'm working on a, a new initiative called the Kinship Discovery. We just published a blog about that today. But that's really helping think about how they move a significant proportion of funds towards young people and their futures. And I'm also working for an initiative called A Rising Quo, which is working with a younger wealth holder who's thinking about his wealth redistribution And I also work at Partners for a New Economy, where I am a job share in a field building role. So there I'm much less focused on our grant making, although it all kind of interlinks and more around how do we ensure that the sort of new economy field has some strategic coherence and how does it weave together with like the wellbeing economy, 
the solidarity economy, donor economics, all the economies that <laughs> move us away from the current economic system, which is definitely not working for many people and the planet. Um, so yeah, that that's sort of broadly where I spend most of my time. And if I'm not in those places, I'm trying to build an initiative that I actually seeded back in 2018 called Stewarding Loss, which is focused actually on how do we help organisations to die well, but can be extended to how do we help foundations do spend downs? How do we close down grant programmes, etc.? I half expected to be watching you kind of like count on your fingers each thing that you were trying to remember to talk about. That's a lot of different things, different hats you're wearing, but I can really see the kind of complementarity and the and as you say, the kind of way that each of them weave into the other and, and have that kind of big picture as well as um, kind of deep impact. What brought you into philanthropy? What's your kind of journey here? Yeah, so my journey into philanthropy is not um, a straight one, but I'm sure that's true. I think it's more and more common these days Everyone, to yeah. <laughs> not have had like some linear path. But I mean, my background is actually in design. And I think when you're originally actually in fashion and textiles, which is very different from what I do now, but I do think my brain works in patterns and like I see the world in patterns. So that's probably some of my textile designer makeup but I left that field of design and went and worked in I guess it was service design was just becoming a thing this was like 2005 2006 so sort of social design and service design and I guess as a designer you tend to never be an expert in the context in which you work and you're bringing more of an expertise around a process and an approach, etc. So I was very lucky to grow up as a kind of social designer, service designer in the kind of social innovation field in the UK. And it meant that I got to work in many different contexts. You know, I worked in central government part time for a year. I worked at the co-op redesigning their funeral services. I set up some of my own enterprises. So I was a sort of social and creative entrepreneur I worked around arts and culture. I worked in a think tank looking at the impacts of technology on society. So, yeah, I, I basically wore many different hats and worked on many different issues using that sort of label or that practice identity as a social designer, service designer, latterly more a strategic designer or a systems designer. I mean, you can kind of put lots of names in front of it. But I think in 2010, I stopped talking about service design and I started talking about systemic design or strategic design because I felt like, and I bring this up because it relates to the imagination, that service design is really fit for purpose when you're thinking about how do we get a passport easily, you know, like sort of transactional services that should just work really simply. But our lives don't exist just in services and services never remember the wider context of people's lives. So my work basically meant that I, in hindsight, I realized I was getting quite a lot of different experience from these different like levers for change for want of a less mechanistic metaphor. And actually it was really intentional by that point. I was like, well, I've, I kind of understand now how policy works. I, I understand how to use arts and culture I understand like setting up your own thing is another way to kind of orient a system or influence something, but I've never worked in funding and like the design of resources, where resources flow, if you're interested in systemic change is a really important lever. So 
I was just lucky that a role came up at the National Lottery Community Fund, which was to set up a new digital fund. And because I was at that point working in an internet think tank, looking at the impacts of technology on society, people had labelled me at that point as a digital person. So they were like, oh, a digital person, digital fund. And it meant that I could move into the funding world at that level to set up and run a new fund in, I guess, what at the time was the largest funder in the UK of kind of community funding. So that was my journey in. And then at the lottery, I ended up doing three different roles in three different years, also during a pandemic. But I found working in funding very, very challenging for all kinds of reasons. And I definitely don't really like wearing an identity as a funder, partly because there's so much more to me and my work than that, a very reductive label. But I haven't given up on wanting to work in it yet. Like I still feel there's work. I mean, there's loads of work to do. Whether that's my work, I'm not sure, but there's still enough that's keeping me in it at the moment. Mm. I think a lot of our listeners will relate to not wanting to be given a reductive label for the role that they're playing in the ecosystem that is trying to make the world a better place. We're so often kind of siloed into specific roles. And I really love the journey that you've taken that's given you so many different perspectives on what it takes to create change and kind of build better things. And I also love you saying that you think in patterns. And it made me think we, <laughs> yes. te- we talk on the ID team all the time yeah. because I feel like I think in shapes and there are folks on the team who think in words. And we talk about all these different kind of like mind yeah. spaces that we bring to thinking about problems, which I think brings us beautifully onto what we'd like to spend time talking with you about today, which is this concept of imagination infrastructure, the infrastructure we all need to imagine what comes next. So could you tell listeners a little bit about that concept and specifically the problem it's trying to solve as well? Yeah, so I'm not going to start by defining what we mean by imagination infrastructure, because that is often what I get (laughs) asked. I will share some of what I think we mean, but I'll start more from like, what's the problem that it's trying to solve or or like, what's the opportunity and what's it trying to address? And so I think some of it for me did start back in you know, 2018, 2019, where I was, I remember like going to run a round table at the Bank of England when Andy Haldane was still the chief economist there. So it was with Andy and a couple of other people. And we'd brought together a group of civil society organisations. I can't remember exactly why, but I was so struck in that conversation that everyone around that table seemed to only talk about services as if in civil society, we had forgotten that like we can be more than that and that civil society is not just there to deliver services. And it really troubled me because I I just believe we are so much more than that together. And that feeling in our knees was there whilst there was also some work coming out by people like Jeff Mulgan, who had written a paper with Demos Helsinki about the crisis of our social imagination you know, Rob Hopkins' book was coming out then, I think, around like the what if. So that was that was some of it. And then and I also, you know, at the lottery, we had a tagline at the time of like communities know best. And there was a lot of work that I'd been involved in for many years, actually, in civil society in terms of like using things like co-design and participatory design and a lot of those practices, co-production that are all rooted in that belief that communities know best or like communities should be in the lead or you need to centre lived experience. And it's all about just asking communities what they want. And 
I think some of that work is really important. But having run maybe about a thousand co-design <laughs> workshops in my very long career as a designer, actually often, if we were honest, the process itself can be really meaningful and really shift things. But the what comes out of those is often not really the thing that's needed. And that's because we never account for people don't know what they don't know, like I don't, like you both don't. Um, it's really hard to imagine beyond things that you haven't ever known of or experienced or had a sense of. So I also felt like, you know, that there's a lot of co-design and co-production stuff in civil society, but not a lot that's beyond that and that recognises the limitations of that. And then I guess I also could see the growing trend and interest in things like deliberative democracy. Like I sat on DCMS, had an advisory group around innovations in democracy for a program they were doing. This was a few years back and I was on the advisory board for that. And we were being brought different examples from around the world of like ways to design citizen assemblies, etc. And again, I think that has a place. I think that's really important work. But it's very downstream because often those processes already start with a question. And I'm never sure we've done enough about, is this the right question? And often those processes are also very cerebral, like a lot of co-design and co-production is too. Like it, it's never drawing on embodied knowing our different types of intelligences. So I think there are limitations just for that reason. Like we're, we're, we're not accessing a huge wealth of, of kind of intelligence. So all of these different things, and there's probably a few more in that list, were making me feel like we need to do something around the imagination. Like we we need to resource people to actually have the time and space and the capacity to really access something that's like deeper and bigger and different and wiser and wilder. And that needs attention and it needs resource. So I often just think of money about is about where you're paying attention. So that was kind of where it came from. And I guess I'd already planted some seeds around this work before the pandemic, um, because the lottery was looking at celebrating their 25th birthday. And I had this big idea that they could do this kind of nationwide mass dreaming thing. They didn't go for it. But, you know, it wasn't that long after that we then were in the first wave of the pandemic. And it felt like everyone was funding the crises, which they needed to, like lots of emergency funding. And then this growing like noise of all the people that you would normally always hear saying about these cracks in the ground and the opportunities for new futures to emerge. And those voices that we could hear were the same voices that we always hear, the people sitting at their desk, maybe in a think tank who have the time and the space and the energy etc to be talking about these futures so I was like this is a time that we really need to resource some very different people to think beyond the present to think beyond the status quo and it, it can't be the same people like if we want different futures if we don't want to keep living inside the kinds of imaginations that kind of got us into this mess then whose imaginations do we need to be resourcing so that was the beginning of the Emerging Futures program at the lottery in the early days of the pandemic. And yeah, really the idea of that was, what does it mean to equip 
communities and and mostly at that point it was place-based communities to actually develop the practices around collective imagination and I'll come on to that maybe in the next bit of questions but those are all the kinds of things it was trying to address and I guess alongside I would say with in terms of the funding world there is a lot of short-termism there is a lot of not thinking beyond like the immediate need and I get why because there's so much immediate need but if we just fund the immediate need we're never going to get different futures and if we don't also fund the kind of the worldviews the mindsets the patterns the logic models that that even create those ideas which to me is what the imagination work is it's the soil from which everything else grows like if that also doesn't get invested in we will just keep repatterning the same things even if it's not just urgent funding there's so much in what you just shared there thank you there's a quote that we've been kind of circling around our team quite a lot because we're doing this very similar in a way when you were talking earlier about fixing funding flows and we have something at IG called the Fix the Flow Fellowship, which is in a way providing imagination infrastructure for fundraisers and funders. And there's a quote, I'm kind of paraphrasing, but it's a Henry Ford quote where he says, if if I had surveyed my customers about what they wanted, they would have said a faster horse. But of course we know Ford for creating cars. We don't, we don't know what we don't know, as you say. It's such a powerful metaphor. And when reading your website, what I just want to call this out for listeners, definitely A, your website's beautiful. I can tell you're a designer. <laughs> so just have a look at Cassie's website. But there's a quote on there where you say, I am most useful working with one foot in the existing system and one foot in discerning, creating, and stewarding the new. That is mm-hmm. like that's such a beautiful duality to do both at the same time and in the same sentence, because I do think a lot of the time we can get stuck in the mutually exclusive binary view of what we're doing here. Mm. I think that's so cool. So we're talking about this, this infrastructure at the systemic level. And I'm wondering if we can bring it down to some practical elements and thinking about our listeners who are working in nonprofits, they're working in funding organizations, maybe they're grant makers, maybe they're fundraisers. And I think many of us know, like we can feel that there is the idea of a car (laughs) nearby, you know, in the periphery of our imagination, but we are so conditioned and focused and burnt out and busy. We want faster horses. We we want faster horses. And it's so, you know, we can have all the workshops and post-its and rapid brainstorms that we want. But what can we all do first as individuals and then maybe as institutions, but what can we do to imagine cars, not faster horses? How do we access this infrastructure in in our like personal moments, in our most intimate moments as people, as teams? I mean, I think there'll be lots of people that probably have some of those practices that means they access those other like realms in their minds, in their bodies. And for some people that might be yoga or meditation or walking out in nature or being by the sea or being with a creature I I think it's very personal I guess like what is it that you need to remind you of like the mystery of the world and the wonder and the awe and those things that yeah remind you that like there's probably things we don't know and we can never know and that gap that that opens up that spaciousness of other potential or other possibilities and yeah I think that's just really personal isn't it like 
how we access that. So I think there is just something about asking yourself that question, like, what is that for you? But I'm really interested in how we invite that in for others as well, because I think one of the things we've learned from doing this work and, you know, we can ground it in some practical examples and, you know, I can share links with you to put with the podcast, but, you know, it's actually really rare for people to be asked, like, what do you long for? What do you dream of? And the invitation to do that, you know, it can really like knock people back and they don't know, they don't know what they dream of because they're never asked and they're never given the time and the resources to do that. So I think there's something really powerful in also being the person that asks others and that invites that in from others. And I guess like this is probably a good time to just mention the collective bit because that that really matters to me. I think that's very particular to me. I think what's been amazing is to see this field of kind of collective imagination growing. And there's now, you know, people might call it social imagination, political imagination, civic imagination, the black imagination, decolonizing imagination, like the ecological imagination. There's all these different versions. And I always want to come back to the collective because I am really interested too in how we make it not this individual activity and this sense of, you know, what is it that the collective can know that we can never know alone? Like, what is it that we can dream together that we can never dream on our own? And that's also maybe some of my background as a designer who became very critical of things like user-centered design and human-centered design and have written a lot about collective design. Like, what if, if you start from a place of really perceiving our interdependence and our interconnectedness, like we are all one in some way. And that's a worldview, which we don't all share. But my worldview is that we are all one and we are nature. And therefore, what can we imagine from that place? And I think that's really powerful. So yeah, that the collective bit is really important to me. But I think there are other practices that are being developed through this. This podcast is made possible by Seagull Family Foundation. We are building an extensive network of extraordinary people, positively transforming lives and communities across Africa. Whether you are a dreamer, funder, leader, or visionary, our network can help you make the greatest impact. To learn more, visit www.seagullfamilyfoundation.org or contact us at info at seagullfamilyfoundation.org. Can I ask about the human-centered design piece? Because I find that really interesting. You said that you're not a huge fan of it or that you you prefer this other kind of framework because I know human-centered design is something that is very commonly referenced. Can you say more about that? What what don't you like about it? What, what are the limits? Yeah, I've written a good few blog posts about this as well, which I can share. And actually, one of them is like one of my most read blog posts, which was called Beyond Human-Centered Design. And I wrote that about four or five years ago. And that that actually came more from a, a different personal experience, which was that my dad, who has now died, he had Parkinson's disease for a long time. And I saw how his care and my stepmom as his carer how everything was designed around either my dad as an individual and his needs and my stepmom as an individual and her needs. So his needs as the patient, her needs as the carer, but no one was paying attention to the needs of their relationship, like the unit that was 
bigger than them as individuals. Mm -hmm. And then also around my dad was a whole system of care, like me and my sister, some of his carers, his doctor, the whole, you know, and actually that system of care was also really important. Like that's the thing that kept my dad well, but everything was always designed for just my dad's needs, which is why I'm, you know, like this idea that you center it on one human in the same way. I'm not a fan of you just center lived experience. I think for me, Balji Sandhu at the Center for Knowledge Equity, she taught me the phrase lived, learned and practice experience. And for me, systemic work is weaving together those three. It's not centering one. Mm-hmm. So that's like my my issue with human-centered design or user-centered design came from that idea that, yeah, it really simplifies what is actually a much more complex web of relationships and other sort of fractals or units that sit around it. But then in that blog post, I go into, there's I think there's six different types of design I talk about. And some of that is also more about the planet, like what does planet-centered design look like? How do we design for the more than human world alongside, you know, human sense design is literally very anthropocentric. Mm. And like, if we are nature, it's very flawed in all the things that it emits from what we need to consider in anything we're designing if we want to live on a planet that sustains us. I love how many levels there are to what you're sharing and how many different lenses you can apply to the mental models that you're describing. And it it kind of makes me reflect a lot on how human-centered design as a concept was so progressive when it was first developed. It was like this idea that we were designing without centering people. We were just like putting stuff, services, products, whatever out without appropriately centering humans. And so it was like very progressive and thoughtful and compassionate that we were finally centering humans. And now, of course, the time is for us to evolve much further past that. And I love the different things you can put at the center of design, but also this kind of idea of collective Design and collective imagination, I think, is really beautiful. And I think we've seen the benefits of that in so many kind of projects that we've developed or been a part of. The space to dream and the kind of groundedness and the tools and the facilitation and the support that you need in order to dream and know what you don't know and kind of go into vulnerable, brave spaces to do all of that. It's not accessible to everyone, as we know. So I'm interested in your perspective on the role of philanthropy or the role of funding in making that possible. There's obviously simple things like kind of just literally funding the space and time that it takes us. But but is there any kind of like larger kind of systems perspectives you have on the role of philanthropy in making that happen? Yeah, I think I think some of philanthropy's role is to literally fund some of that work. And mm-hmm. and I do think But that requires philanthropy itself to recognize the need for it and why it's of value. And, you know, I've been trying to be part of building this field for, yeah, four odd years now. And out of all the work I do, the the, like imagination infrastructure stuff or the collective imagination stuff is still the hardest sell for Mm -hmm. sure. Mm -hmm. And I suppose what I now tend to do is try and if I'm talking to funders or like the board in one of the foundations that I might be in relationship with I like kind of check in with them of what they currently think is working well in the world like where are they seeing that kind of like you know actually quite designerly approach of like there's a problem to solve and there's definitely a clear way to kind of work out how to solve it and we will be able to solve it and you know where there's these 
areas of certainty that people have, which I'm always really curious about because I'm like, wow, I don't feel certain about anything. So like that often opens up a conversation where people feel able to kind of acknowledge like there is a lot really at the moment that we don't know and that we don't have answers for. And I think that means you can make the case for, well, maybe actually we need to really take ourselves into spaces and resource those we fund in had to have spaces to actually think differently. And that isn't going to just be, yeah, with a bunch of post-its and a marker pen, because actually we're still swimming in the same waters. We're still drawing on the same types of knowledges, the same types of intelligences. So we really need to take ourselves into something very different. And what does that mean at a systemic level? I, yeah, I think I think funders who still continue to resource things like consultations and co-design type work, and there's many of those things, I think that I would hope they are starting to ask, like, why are we not getting anything different that comes out of those things? Like, I think the young people field is a really interesting one, which I'm sort of delving into a bit now with my Paul Hamlin Foundation work where like I don't know a lot about that area and it feels like there's like the five same things that every research report every consultation process every co-design process like mental health employment climate crisis like the things that are like not working for young people or that the young people want differently in the future and some of that will be because the conditions like nothing's changing because politicians don't value young people's voices. They don't think they're voters. So they're not, you know, like there's, there's some really structural kind of like dark matter stuff that gets in the way of that change. But I also wonder if it's because are we asking the right questions and are we really equipping young people to dream alongside other types of expertise and wisdom that they just don't have because they are only 15. And again, like there's so much of the young people's field, I see that those processes all being about, we just ask young people what they want and then what they want, we fund and then we don't have any different outcomes. Anyway, I'm sort of rambling. I think like funders should be looking at how do they think they're going to get to some different futures Mm -hmm. if it's not just about money, which it isn't what else is it within the work that funders are doing and resourcing and making space for and paying attention to that they think would really shift people's perspective and really shift what people think is possible. There's so much in what you're saying that I love. And one thing that's coming up for me is how much a lot of funders use the word innovation and they want to fund like newness, right? The the next big thing. And there's this kind of like honoring of the idea of a social entrepreneur or someone who is innovating and like spotting opportunity and creating something new and as you're speaking I'm just thinking how much you're kind of just pointing to the fact that we all have the capacity to dream we all have the capacity to think what could fill this gap that I am feeling in life or this kind of like darkness that I'm what could light up this darkness that I'm experiencing but that so often we think about that in terms of investing in specific interventions rather than kind of fostering that capacity to dream in everyone and I think it's it's not an easy thing to be able to do as a funder or as as an individual to kind of think about bringing that practice into your life or into your work. But I think that even just hearing you describe it, it gives me a sense of relief in a time where 
everything feels like it's not possible, right? It's like things aren't going well on so many different fronts. Things are really challenging. Our democracy doesn't feel like it's serving us. Our economy doesn't. And there's so much in that that can feel really heavy and kind of like this. we're just stuck with this now and this is the downward spiral we're on. And I think actually being called to dream big, not necessarily think positive, but like dream about what you want to be different so that you at least have that picture in your head and you can compare it to reality and then think about what the path Mm -hmm. forward might be. I think that's really beautiful. And so I would like to ask on a positive note, what things are giving you the most hope right now in the kind of ecosystem within which you work? You don't have to limit your response to imagination infrastructure, but you know, you're working on so many different things. So what's the thing that's like getting your blood pumping or kind of making you feel most excited? Yeah. And just one thing I'd love to say in response to what you just said, Emily, I think that was such a, what you just described there, this idea of like, it's not just a one-off thing. It's like, what's an ongoing way for funders to resource people's dreaming? And that is part of the imagination infrastructure, because infrastructure is this thing that you, you tend to over time, you invest in over time. And actually, I, I just think like, in the same way that funders collect data or ask for feedback on how was our application process or how are we doing on DEI, those things are important, especially the latter one. But what if funders also invested in inviting people to come into their space every month to dream together? Like what if it just became as common as it is to get feedback on like their processes, which I do think can sometimes really be very reductive and limiting like for me it's like the opposite of queering Mm -hmm. our our spaces and our dreams so yeah like what you pay attention to grows and if you're just asking for feedback on your processes but not on like what's possible in this world like what can we do together like what you know what are our collective dreams then I think you're really missing a trick in terms of what is giving me hope I mean it's very hard at the moment to feel a lot of hope because we are doing this at a time of everything that's happening in Palestine and Israel and Gaza. I guess, yeah, so one of the things I think has just most recently given me some hope is I have just come back from a four-week trip in Canada primarily and the US. And I guess just some of the ways that they are working with some of the indigenous communities in Canada and how the wisdom that sits there and that is being valued in a way it should always have been is coming back into spaces, hopefully in a really thoughtful way and led by indigenous communities, but with a very different tone to maybe some of the DEI work that I see happening here. Like I'm really inspired by how that is being done there. So that's one of the things that gives me a lot of hope. And then, I mean, this is both hopeful and terrifying, but another thing that recently gave me hope was I was at the Bloomberg City Lab in Washington last week and I watched a panel and there was four women on this panel, four amazing women and their roles were chief heat officers, which I didn't even know was a role. So it's kind of terrifying. You know, one of them is in Miami. One of them is in Melbourne in Australia. One of them actually works globally for the UN, all focused on how our cities are heating up, Mm -hmm. how the globe is heating up. So I felt like a bit terrified by that and also felt like, gosh, the UK 
is thinking very small about a lot of these things, but also so hopeful that there was these women, like incredible women leaders who were like thinking about this kind of very complex, very big, very serious challenge. And I was just really reassured by like the way they were thinking about it. And yeah, so that that made me feel really hopeful. That is really fascinating. I also did not know. I don't think either of us knew there was a chief heat officer. Mm-hmm. What a title. Yeah. Wow. I mean, that says a lot. As you say, it's it's both terrifying and, and hopeful to have the right people behind those kinds of titles. And I'm glad to hear that you had such a great time in Canada. I'm from Canada. And there is... Are you? <laughs> and there is really, really interesting, quite remarkable work being done with Indigenous communities. Still a long way to go, which I know is is important to acknowledge too, but I'm really glad that that was that provided some of the hope. So, wow, we talked about so much today. Thank you for sharing this. Just to kind of bring it to a close, I want to I want to end on a like a practical action point for people who are listening and thinking about the discipline. There's a few things you said earlier around to access our imaginations, to to dream of what the car might be in whatever context we work in. You, you said something earlier about asking the right questions and the people who ask the questions holding a lot of power. So I think that's a really interesting invitation to funders, you know, in terms of what are you longing for? You said that earlier, which I loved. And then you also mentioned some more personal practices, yoga, however you access the mystery, that connection to the mystery of being alive in nature, which I think also is so fascinating given your design roots and there's there's a lot of no pun intended but threads <laughs> a commonality of threads between all the work that you're doing and just even thinking of like the miracle of a, of a piece of cloth and how many threads have to weave together in a certain pattern to create texture and and matter is just absolutely fascinating so before I dive off an existential clip you <laughs> go too deep with this question I mean bring it back to the very practical place to conclude which is what is one thing we can all do tomorrow, the day after, that will help us get closer to a place of mystery and imagination? Whether that's your personal practice or any recommendations you have, what's one thing that we should walk away and do differently? I would go to the Collective Imagination Practitioners Community, which is this growing community of people developing the practices so you can learn about all kinds of practices ancestor practices deep time practices nature practices collective practices and there's also a fund attached to it so we we have resourced it as well so you can actually access bits of money to do some experiments and stuff and really that's all about trying to yeah spread and deepen and grow the potential of this work for, for many people. That's awesome. Thank you for sharing that. I can imagine that the application process for that fund has some interesting questions in it. <laughs> Based on what you said, I can already see the question of what are you longing for? Um, <laughs> don't quote what me What mystery on that. can yeah, you imagine? Yeah, what, what mystery? What is, what is the reality pressing against you? Uh, that's so cool. Thank you, Cassie. Thank you for all the work you do. Thank you for speaking so beautifully and and just sharing all this fascinating insight into the work you do. I think I think it's something a lot of people are craving and they probably don't even have the language. They don't even know what they don't know to even articulate something like this. So even, even that framework itself is valuable. Yeah. Thank you so much. Oh, well, thank you for having me. And yeah, again, this can come in what you share, but there's obviously like a whole web of people that are doing this and that I would 
point people towards and lots of beauty and inspiration in it. Thanks for tuning in and hope you enjoyed the conversation with Cassie. As you could probably hear, I loved it and could have asked a million questions all day long. And I think one thing I wish I'd asked or wish I'd said that I'm just going to cheat and say now at the end is how much of the kind of imagination infrastructure that we currently live with is limiting our ability to change things. Mm. I think the concept of imagination infrastructure can feel quite cerebral or like woo-woo or like a little bit out there, like you can't quite get your head around it. But I think it's important to acknowledge that we are already living within infrastructure that is trying to Mm -hmm. direct our imagination or is is limiting our imaginations, like our economic systems, our cultures, they all kind of decide what we can and can't imagine. And I wanted to share this Ursula Le Guin quote, which says, The exercise of imagination is dangerous to those who profit from the way things are because it has the power to show that the way things are is not permanent, not universal and not necessary. Mm -hmm. And I just find that so freeing that regardless of how you get to it, whether it's an individual practice or an organizational one, or if you're funding it at an ecosystem level, that the ability to imagine things differently, to see, feel and think differently leads to things changing. And that is fundamentally the work that we're all in. Yeah. I love that. And it reminds me of our conversation with Jessamine Shamslau and, and Jane Liu a few episodes ago. We were talking about power dynamics and governance. And something that Jessamine said was that the way things are, the way that our governance and organizational structures are, feel like they're stronger than the laws of physics. Mm. That was a quote she said. And But actually, they are completely made up by our current imagination, by our current infrastructures. And everything is possible to change. Like Everything is up for discussion. I just thought that was such a great way of, of her framing it because they do feel like stronger than the laws of physics. Mm-hmm. And the headspace needed to question, not only question that, begin to question it, and then imagine a change and then act on that change is not something you can do when you're exhausted and when you're incentivized in the wrong direction. And mm-hmm. so I took a lot from this conversation in terms of our work with clients and facilitation, even the questions that we're asking, yeah. the design processes that we're championing and how I can even do that at a personal level and what Mm. that might extend to. It's just also a lot of sympathy, I think, that it brings up for all of us who are trying to do the work of changing the world, whether we're raising money for it or we're leading teams towards it or we are giving grants to try and make it happen. We're all trying to make the world a better place, but we are all trapped within these structures of Mm -hmm. the way things are done (laughs) and often not given the freedom or the infrastructure to think about how things could be different. And Mm -hmm. so I think... I think about this as freedom. How can we put structure in place around us that isn't isn't limiting that the structure that supports us to be free? Yeah. And think free and imagine freedom for yeah. ourselves and everyone. I love that. I'm going to I'm going to challenge myself. I almost want to have like a weekly challenge where I'm like <laughs> What have you imagined this yeah, week? Yeah, like what have I imagined and I think of <laughs> Which I learned from you is the instinct of like, there must be an app for this. <laughs> like all those things when we bump up to the the real or imagined boundaries of our mm. lives and work and we're like, there must be something better. I'm just going to try and listen to that voice a little bit more because yeah. maybe there already is or maybe there's some agency I have in changing things. 
I think for me, I'm actually going to try and free myself from needing to figure out how I would actually enact my imaginings. Because I think mm. sometimes I limit yeah. myself yeah, by yeah. what is possible or what I could do. Yeah. But actually, so many of the greatest ideas come from what mm-hmm. doesn't feel possible, right? But you, yeah. you, you do want it. So I'm going to commit to imagining regardless of practicalities. That is <laughs> so fantastic. Yes. Okay. So listeners, let us know what you are committing to in your imaginations. Would love to hear from you. You know where to find us as always on social media. We're most active on LinkedIn these days. So we're IG advisors on LinkedIn. Our website is impactandgrowth.com. We're also running our Fix the Flow Fellowship, which is our own imagination infrastructure project. It's a really, really exciting thing for us. So you can find out information there at fixtheflow.org. Or you can always just shoot me an email directly. I'm rachel at ig-advisors.com. Our emails are on our website, so just go there and, and you can find us. And finally, of course, another thank you and shout out to our official sponsor, Siegel Family Foundation, for making this possible and to our media partner, Alliance Magazine. Don't forget the code what donors want, all one word, you can use for 50% off an Alliance subscription. Thanks again for listening. See you soon. This podcast was produced by me, Rachel Stephenson Chef, and the team at Scrubcast. Shout out to Dave and Tim. Please rate, review, and subscribe if you can. It really helps us do what we do. Thanks so much. Thanks so much.